start again. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally is brute beasts, and those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without fear, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit fruit twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which which they have ungodly committed, and of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. But, beloved... Remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference. And others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, 
To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. May the Lord grant his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. You may be seated. Well, with a new book, it's good to have a, a brief introduction to the book. The book of Jude is called, maybe your Bible has it, uh, mine does, it's called the General Epistle of Jude. When we talk about a, an epistle being a general epistle, we're distinguishing it from, from a, an epistle like a pastoral epistle, for instance, that Paul would have written to Timothy or to Titus. Uh, an epistle um, directed to a person with certain pastoral instruction in mind. Um, when we're talking about a general epistle, we are thinking more about a, a letter written to the church in general, to the broader church. We just went through First and Second Peter, right? Those were general epistles. They were addressed to all the Christians, right? Um, and, and had general instruction for all Christians. And so when we come to the book of Jude, we realize this is a general epistle. There's no particular person to whom the author is writing. Uh, he's writing to Christians, as we see in, in verses uh, 1 and 2, uh, to those who are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ and called. These are all Christians, right? Um, the author is, uh, is proclaimed by, the, by himself to be Jude. In verse 1, we see that it is Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude is a nickname of sorts. It's short for Judas. Judas is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Judah. Okay, So uh, this was a very, very common name uh, in Jesus' day and at the time of the apostles. But this, the authorship of this book has caused great controversy within the church. There's been a lot of questions about who this Jude is. Uh, who is Jude, and what does it mean that he's the brother of James? Who is this brother, right? And which James is it? It appears that there are three prominent Judes or Judases in the New Testament that this could refer to. There's a Judas Iscariot, which this most certainly is not, right? He passing away by suicide uh, shortly after betraying our Lord Jesus. Uh, it could be Jude, Jesus' brother and not an apostle. We're told in the Gospels that, that Jesus had brothers that followed along with the ministry, some believing, perhaps, or unbelieving, perhaps believing later. Uh, there's a Simon, there's a James, there's a Jude that are talked about there. It could be him. And, and in those verses, we're not, they're not particularly telling us that he's an apostle or even a disciple. Or third, it could be the apostle Judas, son of Alphaeus, also called Thaddeus and Labaius. This guy's got a lot of names. <laughs> Um, the Apostle Judas was also called the brother of James in Luke 6, 16. Now, this happens to be my view, okay? And, and there, are, there are good, godly men who have different views on this, okay? And within this view, there's also a potential that the Apostle Judas, son of Alphaeus, is also the brother of Jesus. <laughs> so there, there can be some questions even within some of these views. But uh, the reason that I think that this is James Alpheus, the brother, or excuse me, Judas Alpheus, brother of James, is that, um, first of all, when he talks about the brother of James, he's, he's, he's connecting himself, I think, to that apostle James who presided over the Jerusalem council in the book of Acts. And this would have been called James the Less, 
even though he was the more prominent James, remember there are two, uh, two disciples of Jesus named James. One was James the Greater, one was James the Lesser. Most people think it had to do with age or height that described, distinguished the two. Well, James the Greater was the first martyr of the church. We find in Acts chapter 12 that he was put to death. This is James, son of Zebedee, who was put to death by Herod very early on. And so um, he's, he's, he's passed from the scene already uh, by the writing of this book. Uh, doesn't mean that it couldn't have been him, but, uh, but Judas is not the brother of that James, son of Zebedee. Okay? Um, and, and so we, we look towards James the Less to be the brother of Jude here, James the Less. Um, also, in Galatians chapter 1, it says that James, James the Less, or James Alpheus, is the brother of Jesus. So within that concept of Jude being a brother of Jesus, if he's the brother of James, he's also the brother of Jesus. The other difficulty there is the, that word brother can have a wider semantic range than just being born of the same mother or father. It could be cousin. Or it could be that, uh, that James, because when it says son of Alphaeus, is Alphaeus the same name as Joseph? It could, could be that Joseph went by two, you know, two different names. Uh, it could be that, um, that it would be a cousin as well. And in, in that Hebrew culture, brother is extended oftentimes outside of just that immediate family. So there's a lot of questions that can surround that. And the difficulty often is with regard to apostle, uh, apostolic authorship and authority in the book. The author is important because we need to have authority from the word that comes through the apostles, not just any old person. And I think that Jude, describing himself as the brother of James, meaning James Alpheus, is describing himself as an apostle, being Judas Alpheus, the apostle and disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And although he doesn't come out and say, I'm an apostle, he's describing himself with this more prominent brother of his to identify the authority with which he's writing. Okay? And it's important to know those things and get them settled because people will try to undermine the authority of the scriptures by, by criticizing or looking critically at who these authors are. And there are other controversies within this book that it's really important to realize that an apostle wrote this in answering those other controversies, okay? So my view is that uh, this Jude is Judas, son of Alphaeus, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, brother of James of Jerusalem, who presided over the Jerusalem council in the book of Acts, Okay. Um, now, it is important to note that this book was recognized very early by the church to be of God's divine inspiration and to be a part of that canon, that set of books that God has, has given to us and God has testified to as being of divine authorship. What is the occasion and purpose of this book? Well, you see it very early. <clears throat> you can see in, uh, in verse 4, that there were wicked men that had crept into the church. They were denying Christ. They were deceiving brethren. They were drawing them away from Christ. And they were living lascivious, wicked, sexually immoral, 
deceitful lives. And so Jude wants to, his purpose in writing is to encourage and exhort the church to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. And you find that in verse 3. His purpose is to exhort, to encourage, to press the church to fight, to fight against the false teachers, and to do so intensely, right? Vehemently, vigorously, to keep the faith and to keep the church pure and undefiled from these early false teachers. As we go through this book of Jude, the next exposition, you'll also find that it's closely associated with the book of 2 Peter. You find a lot of commonality. If you, if you took some time today to read Jude and then read 2 Peter, it will feel like you're almost reading some of the same things. One of those two authors, Peter or Jude, worked hand in hand or used the other as a reference. They're saying the same things. They got the same things in mind from two different perspectives. All right? And so this would also um, argue in terms of Jude being the author, an association with Peter as an apostle, and an early authorship for this book. Not, some people have said this may have happened uh, sometime after even the Apostle John, but those are all false teachers. False, um, those are deceivers in their own way. This book was written very close to the time of Peter, most likely. We're not sure exactly which one followed which, but very close to, two, to the two. Jude was no doubt in association with Peter and was familiar with his letter and Peter with, his, with Jude's. All right, there's, a, there's two other controversies then that we should deal with in this introduction that we'll get to again later in the exposition. Uh, and really these two controversies boil down into one. Jude quotes from this apocryphal book of Enoch, or at least uses this prophecy from Enoch as, a, um, as an authoritative statement of instruction in this book. And he also uses a Jewish tradition with regard to Moses' body and this conflict between the, angel, the archangel Michael and Satan with regard to Moses' body. And that Jewish tradition has the name The Assumption of Moses. And that it's, it's believed that was a written tradition that's been lost to history. And whether Jude used an oral tradition or the book as a reference for this, both of these things are found in his letter. And people have, have gone all different directions on this. The Tertullian believed that Jude was inspired, and, and he was so confused about the use of the book of Enoch that he said, well, then Enoch must be inspired as well. Because if he used the book of Enoch authoritatively, well, that must have been true. And, and then other people will say, well, if he's quoting authoritatively from this apocryphal book, which is not part of the Bible, or this Jewish tradition, which is not part of the Bible, then it undermines the authority of Jude, and we should throw it out of the Bible entirely. Verses 14 through 15 contain that quotation from the book of Enoch, where it says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches with ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, it does look like it's a verbatim quote from the book of Enoch. doesn't mean that he's exactly quoting from the book of Enoch, but he does include that with a very close association of that apocryphal book. Verse 9 has that assumption of Moses uh, passage in it. Um, 
Some have used this passage to say, say, look, he, he's just bringing in the traditions of men within this work. And so Jude is, is mystical and he's following along with these mystical uh, mosaic traditions or Hebrew traditions. We should throw it out. Well, I would like to set your mind at ease with regard to those two controversies. These do not undermine the authority of the book at all in any way. Quoting from an uninspired reference within the Bible doesn't undermine a book. Since God is taking what's in that apostle's mind, that authoritative apostle, and he's using that to teach, it either does one of two things. It either says that those pieces of that apocryphal book or that tradition are true, or the lesson that he's using to teach it is the principle in it is the important thing. But because it comes from the apostle authoritatively, God has decreed that that is what, tr- what is true. It, is it true that Enoch prophesied about those ungodly men? Absolutely, because we have it in Jude. Right? Is it true that there was some sort of, of, of interaction between Moses and this angel? Yes, it's true. We don't need to know anything else about that in in Jewish tradition, but the Apostle Jude says this is what happened. And as we look at the exposition later, we'll find out why he uses that example. Further, Paul does this all the time, right? Paul refers to the Midrash, a rabbinical uh, text in 1 Corinthians 10.4. He refers to a heathen poet in his speech in Athens. He names the magicians who withstood Pharaoh, as Jonas and Jambres, Second Timothy three eight, he draws that from a non canonical canonical source. But nobody questions those books because of those usages, because it's Paul, right? But because there's a doubt about who Jude might be, it's easy to throw stones at this book. But if Jude is Judas, son of Alphaeus, brother of James Alphaeus, an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he thinks in God's perfect uh, method of inspiration that these are two accounts that ought to be included in his letter for the church to understand better what's at stake, it is true and it is scripture. Shouldn't be doubted. Uh, Furthermore, we don't need to worry about the book of Jude because it has been providentially preserved for us in the canon. As opposed to things, ironically, like the assumption of Moses. Those things which are not scriptural, which do not have the divine stamp of authority, are lost to history very often. God's word is never lost to history, but it's been available to his church in every age of the church, kept pure and entire. God has declared this book to be authoritative by establishing it in his word. And that is really the doctrine of providential preservation. God preserves his own word. All right, so as we look through the book, we're only going to get through verse 3 today, and we'll save the rest for later. We're going to divide the book into an introduction in verses 1 through 2, and then an exhortation to fight in verse 3. Verses 4 through 19, uh, the apostle Judas, or Jude, identifies the danger that was, was on the doorstep and, in fact, inside the church and the works of the wicked. And then in verses 19 through 23, 
He's going to exhort them to godliness. And then verses 24 through 25, we have the doxology. So verses 1 through 2, an introduction. Verse 3 is this exhortation to fight, contend. Verses 4 through 19, identifying the danger. Verses 19 through 23, exhorting to godliness. Verses 24 and 25, the doxology. So let's look at the introduction for a moment. There are a couple of items in this greeting which are just marvelous for us to think about. Jude writes to all Christians and says that you are sanctified, preserved, and called. Now he says you're sanctified by God the Father. The word sanctified has two meanings in it. The first is to be made holy and pure. To be sanctified is to be purified, to be, to be cleaned. But it also means to be set apart. To set, be set apart unto something holy, unto something special, unto a special holy use. In this case, God has sanctified you, has separated you, Christian, unto himself. He set you apart. And this is what Jude is, is declaring and reminding these Christians of. He separated you to be a special treasure unto himself. But not just for any, just set apart in some vacuum, just to be off on a shelf to be looked at. No, he set you apart to be holy. His peculiar holy treasure. From all eternity, brothers and sisters, from all eternity, God has set you apart. He set you apart by name. He set you apart by personality. He set you apart by his purpose and his decree and his providence in your life to be his special treasure. What a precious comfort that is, right? And wouldn't that be a comfort to those who are in the middle of waging a war against wickedness in the church? But not only are you set apart, you're also preserved. You're preserved in Jesus Christ. As God's special treasure, God has made all the provisions necessary to keep you, to preserve you. He doesn't just say, I'm going to set you apart and then leave you to figure it out. He does it in Christ. The power and grace of Christ, his perfect mediation, all of his benefits flow to you to maintain and preserve you in that special relation to God as his special holy treasure. And then he adds called, and I'm, I think there's an ellipsis in there. There's an implied idea called by the Holy Spirit. So you have, you have set apart by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, and then called in time and space, in this life by the Holy Spirit. God has set you apart from all eternity. God has established the means of your redemption and your preservation in Jesus Christ. But you're still born a sinner. You come from the womb. I come from the womb speaking lies. And so in this life, in time and space, the Holy Spirit does what? He, He opens up your understanding. He renews your will. He enlightens your mind in the knowledge of Christ. And you are called and regenerated. You've got a new birth in Jesus Christ. And so what you have here is you have the economy of salvation laid out for you. You are preserved. You are a Christian because the Trinity is working together to decree, to establish, to call, and to preserve you. This is important as we we wage a warfare in this life to remember that our calling and election is sure 
because the Trinity together makes sure that it's sure. Finally, notice then that he attaches blessings that flow from this calling, this salvation. There is peace, there is mercy, there is love as a result of this. Brothers and sisters, what a great blessing we have, even in an introduction to a small little letter. Right? Our salvation is sure and the blessings that flow from it are sure. Then in verse 3, we look, we're going to look for a moment at exhorting to fight. Exhorting to fight. Jude declares that the purpose of this book is to fight. To fight for that faith that was once delivered unto the saints. It's very apparent, and we'll see more of this next week, that the visible church from the earliest days was under attack. And it, had, it corrupted itself internally very early on. Jude says that the purity and maintenance of this faith is something that needs to be fought for. And he does not hold back. He does not hold back. There is strong language in this book. Those of you who have been gathered together in Christ, fight for this faith. But what does Jude mean by faith here? The word faith can be used in multiple ways. The Greek word translated faith can describe the instrument of salvation, right? The instrument of salvation. In that usage, faith is the alone and empty instrument of salvation. It's the gift of God by which you are are enabled to believe all of those things about Christ that are offered to you in the Bible, to receive Christ and to rest upon him alone for salvation. But this isn't how Jude is using the word faith. He's not talking about that faith that justifies, that faith that, uh, that is a saving faith. No, there is a sense in which the doctrine that is believed by faith is so closely attached to belief that it's called the faith. The doctrine that we believe is so closely attached to belief itself that it is called the faith. Faith can be used to describe the system of doctrine that we believe. And this is how Jude is using the word faith. The faith. Contend earnestly for the faith once delivered unto the saints. Notice it is once delivered. It's settled. It to Jude and to the apostles. There's no doubt about the continuing inspiration. Or whether or not apocryphal books that were not a part of the the canon need to be brought in or whether the entirety of the assumption of Moses should be found and added. No, the faith has been once delivered. Jude has within itself a proof text against Tertullian. (laughs) You don't need to bring the book of Enoch in because the faith has been once delivered, and that wasn't a part of it as a book. Okay, The Bible and its system of doctrine has been delivered and is settled. In contrast to saving faith, which is, uh, which is worked in the heart of every believer as they come in in time and space, this is the faith, the doctrine, the system that has been once delivered. Now, how is this contending done? How is this fighting to maintain the purity of the entire system of faith done? Well, it's done according to our place and station. Paul, remember, Uh, Paul many times was writing to the ministers, to the elders, to contend for the faith. He tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Well, Timothy's a pastor. He's going to do that differently than than those who aren't called to that ministry. But, But Jude is writing to all Christians to contend for the faith. So how do we do that? Well, the officers 
The officers contend differently. The officers in ages past contended for the faith. And how did they do that? They established creeds and confessions by fighting out the truth. They had councils where we, where we fought for truth, for the person and work of Jesus Christ, for the person of the Holy Spirit, for the doctrine of justification. And when it was all settled out and the truth was identified, it was, it was written down and the boundaries of faith were set in the confessions and in the creeds. The officers in our age labor to maintain those boundaries, right? We, they've already been established, and so now we maintain them. When people try to pull the rocks of the wall out and open up a new way, we put them back. Right? We maintain them. When we see cracks in the mortar, we, re, we patch it, right? Now, the officers are the public voice of the church, and so it's their duty to declare the truth and to point out when other officers are out of line, when they've stepped out of, out of bounds, when they've tried to move the boundary. In our age, people are often critical of this public declaration, but it is absolutely necessary. Under shepherds of Christ's sheep must not allow the sheep to be fooled by those who would move the walls of the sheepfold. We cannot let the sheep think that if they get out of the sheepfold, it's okay. There's one gate, and we all pass through that one gate. There are others who are trying to make other gates. And what they're doing is leading the sheep off the cliff. Right? They're leading them away from safety. One of the ways we do this is by having presbytery meetings, by examining officers to see... Do you believe the system of faith that the Bible teaches? And if they don't, we don't receive them. And if they do, we welcome them gladly. And if there's lack, we teach, right? The other thing that we do is we hold officers accountable to their vows. If they say, I believe this, and then they change and they do something contrary to belief, we discipline. We discipline. Now, this contending is also done privately by officers. How do we do that? How about family visitation? Making sure everybody's growing, everybody's okay, that the sheep are well cared for. How about counseling? How about praying for, encouraging, exhorting, admonishing, catechizing? Right? Working to keep the sheep in, in good shape. It's not just the officers who contend either. All those who profess faith contend for it. Well, how do you do that? Well, first of all, by knowing the faith, knowing the truth, and defending it in your private life. When you, what's the sin we're going to find? The sin that we're going to find is a problem with these people is their lasciviousness, their immorality, their wickedness. If you profess Christ and the doctrine of faith that is laid down in Scripture and then live contrary to it, you're not contending for the faith. You're undermining the faith. So you must own the faith and live according to it, living lives worthy of the gospel. Your life of godliness, brothers and sisters, stands as a witness against this generation. It is the way that you contend every day for the faith. By not living the way they're living out there, but by living how we live in here. 
And it's especially, you'll find this later in verses 20 through 21, it's especially built up and maintained in those, those exercises of public, private, and family worship. In verses 20 through 21, Jude says, Build up yourselves and your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? Every day coming to Christ in his word. Every day coming to Christ in prayer. Every day, fathers, bringing your children and your wife to that, the altar, that family worship. Every day, bringing yourself and your families before Christ. And then weekly coming here and gathering and being built up and admonished and exhorted to contend for the faith. That's how we do it. And then finally, giving public testimony of your faith when it's required of you. You might be sitting in a, in a classroom and, and that teacher is pronouncing blasphemies or, or saying falsehoods against Christ. You have an obligation to say something. Amen. If your friends are saying something wicked, you have an obligation to say something. Remember Francis Schaeffer in in that Christian manifesto, where's your loyalty to Christ? It's a challenging question. But that's our obligation to contend personally for the faith. In conclusion for today then, we might often be tempted to think, and many have, oh, if we could just get back to the time of the apostles. (laughs) We wouldn't have these problems we have today, right? It would be so much easier to get back to that pure, sincere faith of the early apostolic church. Well, I think the book of Jude, 1 and 2 Peter, Corinthians, they testify to us that we have it a lot better today than that early apostolic church does. Let me have you consider just a moment the blessing of a confession of faith, the confession of the godly ecumenical councils, those creeds. We have boundaries set up, set up out, out for us that have been established in history, bought and, and purchased in the blood of the saints, the testimony of the truth. And we don't have to question that anymore. Instead, we teach, we build, we protect, we maintain the boundaries. Isn't that a better place? Isn't that a better place? We, and yet, we're tempted to give it up. We see our brothers and sisters giving up those confessional boundaries. Or perhaps saying they abide by them and they really don't. Well, brothers and sisters, how do we maintain? I would submit it's by going daily to the Lord. It's by examining our heart according to the truths of the faith and pleading with Christ to keep us in the faith, right? Pleading with him to keep the faith in our churches. And what else is it? It's keeping our vows. Brothers and sisters, members of this church, we've all taken vows to the Lord Jesus Christ to live lives worthy of that gospel, of that faith. Let me exhort you to seek Christ that you may do that. Amen. Amen. Turn with me in your Psalters to Psalm 36a. This psalm describes the thinking of those wicked deceivers that are within the church 
in Jude. It also provides a contrast for what we want to be. (laughs) As we sing, let us sing and think of the godliness that God has set before us as opposed to the wickedness and where we have participated in this wickedness. Let us confess our sins. Remember that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us stand and sing Psalm 36a. Thank you.